All right, how's everybody doing this Sunday after Thanksgiving? Are you still full? Like loading up on the leftovers, right? You guys like that stuff? Do you like the holiday stuff? Or are you exhausted? Can I see the hand of anybody that might be exhausted? All right, well, you know what comes after Thanksgiving, right? We get to launch full into the Christmas season. Are you ready for it? Yeah, that was enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, I get it. Um, this morning, we're going we're gonna to do something a little different. We're going to spend some time in the Old Testament. We don't normally do that. We don't do a lot of that here at Grace, but um, I'm kind of excited about it. We've, I've been doing it with the kids. Um, so I'm just basically, basically going to teach you or talk to you about what I talk with them about. Is that okay? We won't do a craft or anything like that, I promise. Um, so you're just going to have to listen. Um, now, today we're going to talk about some Bethlehem stories. And Bethlehem conjures up for us ideas about Christmas. And whether you're ready for it or not, if you're excited about it, or if you're kind of dreading it a little bit, or maybe it's kind of a mixed bag for some of us. Like, we love it, and it's our favorite, but then there's this weight that comes with it, with all that there is to do, and all the peopling and the decorating and all the things that kind of overwhelms us, right? It's a little bit of a mixed bag. But I'll, I'll tell you, if you're one of those that is kind of dreading it, don't worry. I'm not going to get all Christmassy on you. Even though we are going to talk to talk about Bethlehem, we're going to go to Bethlehem, actually. Um, and we're going to hear some stories about Bethlehem that my hope in telling you these stories is to give you a little something different to think about as we enter this holiday season, okay? And like I said, I've been doing it with the kids, and we've had a ton of fun, so I hope it's kind of fun in here for us, too. One of the things that we've been talking about um, over there with the kids is we've been studying the Bible. We've been looking, it, looking at it as a picture that's similar to a quilt, okay? And both the Bible and the quilt have purposes as a whole, right? So you have the quilt, and it has a purpose that's to keep you warm. Sometimes it might be displayed like, you know, over a chair, or even I've even seen some on the wall as art. And the Bible as a whole has a picture for us too. It, it teaches us about God and about who he is and about how much he loves us. And it teaches us about ourselves, right? It teaches us um, um, that, you know, we're, we're a mess, and we, we need a savior. So it's when we, we can look out and look at it as a whole and we can zoom in and look at the little tiny stories and the different pieces and the dis different pictures just like on that quilt that we were studying there. So the Bible as a quilt is kind of a picture that I want you to get in your head a little bit because we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at certain little pieces of the Bible and then we're going to zoom out and look at it as a whole as well. And we've had a great time doing it. Normally, when we zoom in on the pictures that are on the things of the Bible, we study, you know, different characters or maybe different things that Jesus has said or different types of theologies or different things like that. That's normally what we zoom in on. And today, we're zooming in on the setting of what is the most famous story kind of in the Bible, right? It's, it's the Bethlehem story. And so that's why we're kind of going there today and looking at it like that. And have you guys ever thought about how, how the setting of a story really matters? So if I were to tell you the story of a snowman and I were to put him on top of a snowy mountain, you wouldn't really think much about it. 
Or if I were to take a picture of, um, or if I were to start a story and, and tell you about a mermaid that was swimming under the sea, you wouldn't really think a whole lot about the setting. It would just kind of be a part of the story that you would expect. But if I took a snowman and I put him on a, 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 a beach, right? If I put him in the middle of the water, you're going to look at that snowman and go, why is he smiling? <laughs> He's about to meet certain death, right? If somebody doesn't help him out. Or if I were to take the mermaid and if I were to put her on top of the snowy mountain, she's sitting there all contemplative and stuff, but girlfriend needs to get on with it. She's going to, like, she's in trouble here, right? And either one, and either one of these two would-be stories, our characters need some intervention. Either they need some superpower from within that they don't know that they have in order to rescue themselves, or they need some outside help, don't they? They need intervention from someone outside of themselves. And what I want to talk about today is the fact that when you hear, um, when you're confronted this holiday season with Jesus being born in Bethlehem, it's like that picture of the snowman on the beach. It's like the picture of Ariel on the mountain. There's something about it. When we learn Bethlehem's backstory, the author here, the author of these stories is trying to tell us to pay attention. Something's happening here. Something's going on that we, we won't see if we don't know these Bethlehem stories. But by knowing these Bethlehem stories, at least for me, it gives me this whole new appreciation for where this story take play, takes place. And obviously, it gives me a whole new outlook on this story, or I just appreciate it so much more. Some of the stories that I'm going to tell you today you'll be familiar with. Uh, you learned them in Sunday school. Um, and some of them you have probably never heard before, and I guarantee you, you didn't hear them in Sunday school. Um, I certainly did not teach them to your children um, because I would never do that, as you'll find out why here in a minute. But for all of the stories, I'm just going to put up the, ref the references will be on there, and you can just, if you want to jot it down and read them for yourselves later, you can do that. All right, so here we go. First Bethlehem story, the very first time Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible. All right, first time is in Genesis 35, 19, and involves a woman named Rachel. You may be familiar with her as Jacob's wife. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel is Jacob's wife. They were married. She has a whole story that we're not going to get into, um, except to say that Rachel, for a long time, wanted children but wasn't able to have them, okay? And then, as the story goes, she uh, has two sons. One is um, uh, Joseph, right, the one with the dreamy technicolor coat. It's him. And then the other one is Benjamin, and where Bethlehem is mentioned is that uh, Rachel and her husband were traveling, and she, uh, she was great with child, and she started giving birth to Benjamin, and she died there, giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried there. And so that is our introduction to Bethlehem, Rachel dying in childbirth and being buried there in Bethlehem. Good story? You excited to hear more? 
I'm just getting started. Just you wait. So from the start, Bethlehem is, is introduced to us as a place with kind of a bad reputation, right? A place where a, a woman gave uh, birth to a child and she died and was buried. All right. It gets worse. Um, the next grouping of stories about Bethlehem are found in the book of Judges. You guys been, in, been diving deep into Judges lately? Like, it's awesome, right? We go home. We, no? You guys aren't reading Judges daily? It's a really hard book. It is, it's the one that you get to when you're, when you're following that plan, you know, that takes you through the Bible in a year. I mean, it's one of those that if you make it through the first ones, the first five, I'm telling you, you get to Judges and you're going to quit because it's just awful. There's just some awfulness in there. This is where our next group of Bethlehem stories come from. The first story, um, oh, let me give me one little uh, piece of backup here, is the book of Judges historically happens after Moses, right? So like after Moses leads the Hebrew people out of slavery and captivity, and then with Joshua, they go into the promised land. This is where we are historically speaking, is in this time when the, the Hebrew people were in the promised land, but they didn't really have a leader. Um, and so this is when Judges is taking place. Did I just go out? Is that my mic? Did my mic just die? <laughs> it just got softer? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, all of a sudden, I wasn't as loud, um, which is probably a really good thing <laughs> for you all because my voice is so loud. Um, okay, so historically speaking, that's where we are with the book of Judges. And the Judges, Judges, the book got its name because that's who, was the, that's who uh, were the rulers of the Hebrew people, the Israelites at that time. So the first judge that we want to look at, uh, we find in Judges 12, 8 through 10. There's three whole verses about this guy. Judges 8, or Judges 12, 8 through 10. And the only thing we learn about this guy is that he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he had 30 sons. Oh, just wait. He had 30 daughters. Right? He gave his 30 daughters away to foreign men in marriage. And then he got 30 foreign wives and gave them to his sons in marriage. And then he died in Bethlehem. There is our second Bethlehem story. It's awesome, right? So zooming in and we're looking at these details and we're going, what in the world? What, is this, what are these verses in this Bible for? I don't get it. What are they trying to tell us? And I think this is a time that if we zoom out and we look at the Bible as a whole, we can maybe find something out here. So as you guys giggled when I said that he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, um, the, the standard of monogamy and fidelity were definitely not in this guy's wheelhouse, right? Do we all agree with that? Um, the whole thing, the whole bit about the foreign uh, marriages and stuff, uh, if we kind of zoom out and look at the, at the whole, um, the law, the culture of the Israel people then, the Hebrews, it was not a good thing to intermarry like that. It wasn't good. It was a sign of absolute rebellion against the law and everything that God stood for to be intermarried like that then. So what do we have to learn from this guy in Bethlehem? He was a judge 
who should have like upheld God's laws and things right, and he didn't. He actively rebelled against them, so he was an unlawful ruler of this land. Second story. Bethlehem's cool, right? We're loving it. All right, next Bethlehem story. Um, the next group actually get, uh, they're just terrible. Um, judges 17, 18, and 19, 17, 18, 19, and 21. They all, all four of those chapters have this one phrase in it that is repeated throughout, you know, in each one of those chapters. And because of that repetition, like, we're being asked to pay attention to it. Um, and, and the phrase that is there in all four of those chapters is, during this time, during this time in Judges, uh, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel four times. And then after each time it says that, it, it either says this next thing or it shows it. What, it. what it's saying right after that, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is kind of what Judges is all about. There's no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And I'll tell you what, when I told your kids this, there wasn't one of them, not one, who didn't understand that while everyone doing what was right in their own eyes sounds cool for just a second, they all understood that that wasn't a good thing. They all got it. They all understood that when we do what's right in our own eyes, at best, someone's going to be unhappy. But more likely than that, someone's going to get hurt, right? When we do what is right in our own eyes. So this is what we're working with here is this land, this time when there was no king and when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So in Judges 17... We have a guy who steals money from his mom, right? Then he decides to give it back to her. He gives it back to her, and she says, awesome, thank you. Um, I'm going to give it all to the Lord. But what she does is she takes a chunk out of it. She makes some household items, idols for this guy, and gives it to him. Isn't that great? She makes household idols for him. So then, he, what does he do? He's a guy. He's got idols. He decides he needs a priest of his very own. So this is where our Bethlehem connection comes in. And he meets, this guy who stole money from his mom, meets a Levite from Bethlehem. Here's our Bethlehem connection. Okay, so he makes this Levite the priest. His very own priest. He gives them some clothes. He gives them the room to stay in. He feeds them. They're having a grand old time. He's got his very own priest. Be like having Matt, you know, live in your back room or something, right? Sorry, Matt. Um, it wouldn't be like that at all. Anyway, so this guy's living high. He's, he's doing great. He's being taken care of, getting all his needs met by this guy. Well, then in chapter 18, our, our Levite priest from Bethlehem meets this other group of people that are more powerful, that have more money, and guess what he does? He ditches the first guy and goes off with them. And he's hanging out with them, so he's a really awesome guy. No, he's not. He's a total schmuck from Bethlehem. He just really is. He's not a good guy at all. 
And so he's hanging out. Now he's hanging out with his group. Uh, and they're looking for, you know, a home or whatever. And they ask him, is God going to bless us wherever we go? And this priest doesn't talk to God. The Bible doesn't say anything about him talking to God, this priest from Bethlehem. He says, yeah, yeah, God's going to bless you. You should go. And so where these guys go, where they go is to this town, this town. And this town is described as a place where the people are living securely. They're living happily. They're living peacefully. They don't really have a leader. They're just kind of up in the hills, and they're just hanging out, and they're just having a good old time. And this group of people, with God's blessing, not with that schmuck from Bethlehem's blessing, they go and they wipe out everyone in the city and they take it for themselves. It's awful, right? It's awful. Nowhere in that story, nowhere in it, does it say anything about God's blessing as they did this. And the reason they did it, they thought they were doing it because this guy from Bethlehem tells them that it's a good idea. And so that's what they do. All right. You guys ready? Judges 19. Worst story in the Bible. 19, 20, 21, all in there. Worst. Any of you know it? No. Good. It is not a story that you learned about in Sunday school, as I said before. But here it is. But I imagine, I imagine that our sweet Mary and our sweet Joseph learned it in their Saturday school, <laughs> right? So here it is. So the next person that we're introduced to from Bethlehem is a concubine from Bethlehem. So a woman who's a concubine from Bethlehem. Uh, she meets this guy, they get married, um, and they, they live in this city kind of off in the distance a little bit. Um, something happens between them. We're not really told what, um, but for some reason, something happens and she leaves. She leaves Bethlehem, or she leaves and flees to Bethlehem. So she goes home, and she's staying with her dad. And this guy goes after her. The husband goes after her. And uh, he says, um, you know, that he, he goes to her and he wants her back. And he kind of pleads with her dad and all this and that. And, and we know that he's not going after her because he loves her. And the reason we know that is because of what happens next. And what happens next in this story um, has some pretty strong echoes of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Okay? There's a group of men that come to the house where they're staying. They want the men in the house. And this sweet guy throws his wife, literally, out of her father's house and to the men. This is not safe for the little ears. They gang rape her all night long and leave her for dead at the footsteps of her, of his father's house, of her father's house in Bethlehem. All of this is taking place in Bethlehem, in the place 
where we have that sweet little manger scene and sweet little baby Jesus. This is the backdrop. This is the backstory of this place where Jesus was born. It's awful, right? It's awful. Okay, it gets worse. Aren't you glad I didn't teach it to your kids? It gets worse. She's laying there in a heap, right? Having been beaten and abused all night. He picks her up. He throws her over the back of his donkey, and they head home, back to his home city. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't take care of her. He doesn't treat her wounds. He doesn't console her, nothing. He throws her on the back of the donkey, and they start traveling to his home city. Somewhere along the way, she dies. Um, then he takes her body. He cuts it up into 12 pieces and sends it off to the 12 tribes of Israel. Awesome story, right? Sends it off to the 12 tribes of Israel. This then starts this big old thing, and, and all of Israel, the 12 tribes, end up in civil war because of what has been done to this woman. And this is how we end the book of Judges, and this is why you have probably never read the book of Judges, because the whole thing is just horrible like that, all right? And once again, this is the backstory to Bethlehem. When our sweet Mary and Joseph were on their way to Bethlehem, this is where they knew they were going. They were going to the place where Rachel died in childbirth. Mary's big old pregnant. She's going to the place where her ancestor died in childbirth. I guarantee you she was thinking about it. She, she might have even been, as she's riding that donkey. Like, why do we have that detail? <laughs> why do we have that detail that she rode a donkey? I think it's because it connects us back to that poor woman who was so mistreated, who died on the back of the donkey, right? It's awful. I'm sorry. I hate it but it's in there. And can I just like side note, just real quick, side note. When we, when we talk about like how we love our Bibles, I do, I love my Bible so much. I love it so much. We need to be careful sometimes because there's stories like this in there. And this is the worst one that I know of. But I'm just saying, we need to be careful and we need to understand why these stories are in there. And we'll get there, I promise. I promise we'll get there. So that's the worst of it. You guys ready for a little bit of good news about Bethlehem? Just a little bit? Let's see if we can find some good news in our next story about Bethlehem. Okay, so the next story about Bethlehem is this, that there was a guy living in Bethlehem, all right? He was married. He had two boys. Um, one of his boys' names was Sickness. One of his boys' names was Sickness, and the other one's name was Pining. Not yet, Stephen. Not yet. Give me a few minutes. I'm so sorry. I know that. Did that sound like my cue? It wasn't. Okay. <laughs> Couple minutes. I promise. Okay. So, so there's this guy. He's married with two boys. One's name is Sickness, and the other one's name is Pining. Can I tell you what Pining means? Pining means this. He was wasting away mentally and physically. He was wasting away. These, I told the kids that that's not their real names. These boys, they weren't named sickness and pining, but it's what their names 
mean, right? So this guy's living. Um, Bethlehem at the time, it's actually during the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And um, in Bethlehem at this time, there was, there was a food shortage. They had no food, which is totally ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread, did you know that? Bethlehem means house of bread. So here's this famine going on in the land, in the promised land where God's living, and there's no food. So this guy thinks it's a really good idea for him to take his family and leave the promised land and move to a foreign land. Not only was it a foreign land, it was a foreign land that happened to be uh, Israel's like arch enemy. Good idea for this guy? You think it's going to go well for him? It doesn't. Uh, they live there for a little while. He dies. So sad. Then his two boys end up, they grow up, and they get married, and they marry foreign women, which, again, culturally speaking, was not a good thing. It was an act of rebellion. They marry these two foreign women, so guess what happens to them? They die. Right? So then you've got these three widows on their own in this land, and they're trying to make a go of it, and they just can't. There's no way for them to, to, to you know, take care of themselves. And so the woman decides that she's going to take her two widowed daughters-in-law, and they're going to move back to Bethlehem. So here we kind of start to see the story turn a little bit, and some of you are recognizing this story as the story of Ruth. Right? It's the story found in the book of Ruth. Now... They get back there, and there's some, there's some good things that happen. Not going to lie. There's some really good things that happen. And the story kind of starts to turn. And it turns as uh, people are, are brave, and they show loyalty, and they show concern for each other rather than just concern for what they think is the right thing to do. So we kind of see the, tori- the story turn but where it really turns, where it takes like, like this massive turn, is when we're introduced to the kinsman redeemer, who is Boaz, right? And through the story, I'm not going to go into all the details. A kinsman redeemer, kinsman just means like family, right? A lot of you hung out with your kin this last weekend, right? It's just a family member. And a redeemer is somebody who, um, in the family who was to care for, to, to make up for, to buy, to correct the faults or the lacks in another, in another person that was in his family. So that's what the Redeemer's job was to care for the other people, to make up for, to pay for their faults or the bad things that happened in their situations. And this is the first time that we see something positive coming out of Bethlehem. Everything else has been awful. And for this moment, we see with this kinsman redeemer, we see something positive finally coming out of Bethlehem. And then at the very end of the book of Ruth, we're introduced to King David, right, as being uh, Ruth and Boaz's grandchild somewhere in there, right? And we see David appear. Now, David is an interesting character. Um, you know, he, he's coming on the heels of there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there was a lot of hope 
placed in David, that he would be this awesome king, that, um, that, that this king figure would care for the people and would make everything right and would protect them and unite them and, and make them all, you know, a united kingdom under David's leadership. Oh, David was brave. Uh, he was handsome. He was strong. He, you know, he beat giants and stuff like that. Like, he was cool, right? He wrote poetry. He was musical. All the moms are in the room are going, oh, if such a son were there or such a man was there for my daughter, right? Nope, you don't want David for a son-in-law. You don't, you don't, you don't. He's a polygamist. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He is so full of human flaws, deep-seated human flaws, right? David wasn't going to be their redeemer. He wasn't going to be the king to end all kings. He wasn't going to be that dude. They had to look to the next king and the next king and the next king for a long time. There's so much to David's story. You can read it starting in 1 Samuel 16. It kind of goes on through uh, 2 Samuel, and then there, you know, he's in other places too. And as I read this, as I read this story, um, and I'm thinking about the, the line of Bethlehem, thinking about, thinking about zooming in and looking at Bethlehem, there was something about David's story that I had never noticed before. Um, 1 Samuel 16 tells us that um, David's dad didn't even consider him worthy of being called a son, right? So when Samuel was there to appoint the next king of Israel, Samuel tells his dad to gather all his sons and bring them in a room, and David, or Samuel was going to pick the next, the next king. And so he went, you know, one by one, each of the sons, and he was like, no, not that one, no, not that one, no, not that one. And Samuel has to go, wait, is there another son somewhere? And David's dad was like, oh, yeah, he's out in the fields. Like, he didn't even bother to call him in. He didn't even call him worthy to be a son. Samuel's brothers were full of disdain for him. They didn't like him. He, they called out his pride and his deceit in front of the entire nation when David was about to go face Goliath. Psalm 27, David says this. He says, my mother and my father have forsaken me. Poor guy had nobody. He was considered insignificant to his family. And this is where we see, this ties hand in hand with the very last time that we hear about Bethlehem in the Old Testament. The last time we hear about Bethlehem is in Micah 5.2. And it says, um, kind of an abridged version, as for you, Bethlehem, seemingly insignificant. From you, a king will emerge. And we know it's not David or any of the other kings because they've all reigned and died, right? This happens after that. But what we know about this king that is going to emerge from insignificant, awful Bethlehem, he's our king, isn't he? He's our king of kings. We know he's our Jesus. This is who emerges from insignificant, awful 
Bethlehem some 700 years after Micah wrote that. So now, let's turn for just a second and look at what the New Testament has to say about Bethlehem. Um, remember that mixed bag that we talked about when we talked about Christmas? Bethlehem in the New Testament is a total mixed bag, completely. There's some wonderfulness there, as there is at, at any birth of any child. There was joy, and there was uh, just wonder and awe, and there were shepherds, and there was singing, and there were angels, and there were kings, and there were presents. I mean, it was awesome. It was Christmas morning. It was awesome. But if you remember, at first, Bethlehem didn't have anything good to offer this sweet family, did it? It offered them a stable, <laughs> a cave probably. It offered them a feeding trough for a crib. It offered them rags, no sweet little baby blankets, right? And then, and then, the last time we hear about Bethlehem in the New Testament is... Um, is the story of King Herod, who has heard about the true king of the Jews, who he wants to wipe out. And he does so. He thinks he does so. He tries to do so by killing every baby born in Bethlehem from an infant to like a toddler. And that's how we leave our sweet Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, even though it has these awesome moments in the New Testament, it has these wonderful moments, right? The bad reputation is kind of the one that sticks, isn't it? I mean, it's just the sheer awfulness of it all. It's just awful. And if you think awful, if that's too big, then at least insignificant. you got to give it insignificant because it's not mentioned again. So these are our Bethlehem stories. Aren't you so glad that you came this morning? Are you, like, ready to go and, like, conquer Christmas? Yes. Yes. No. No, you're not. Stephen. Yes. No, you're not. What you're hoping is that this ends soon and quickly so you can go home and get lunch. Guess what? I'm thinking the same exact thing. <laughs> Can't we get through this and go home and get lunch, right? But we've zoomed in and we've looked at all of these Bethlehem stories and we've studied some of their details. There's more in there. But we've looked closely and it kind of leaves us confused. It kind of leaves us going like, I don't get it. Why would Jesus be born there? Why is that the setting to where our sweet Savior was born. Let's zoom out. Let's look at the whole once again. Let's look at the purpose of the Bible, the purpose of these stories. It's so that we can learn about God's love. It's so that we can learn about people who are messy and oftentimes after their own good. And it's to show us that we need a redeemer, that we need a savior. And I think these stories 
being, I think Jesus' birth being set in this place shows us that Jesus was willing to come into that mess. He came there, that awful place where some of the worst stories in the Bible happen. That is where he entered into our lives. And it kind of turns everything around, doesn't it? It kind of turns it around. So these Bethlehem stories give us something to think about. The author wants us to see something. Do you see it? By placing Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the the author is begging us to pay attention. Something big is happening here. The darkness woven throughout these Bethlehem stories offer a stark contrast to the love and light that enters the world with the birth of this child. Instead of a woman dying in childbirth, with the birth of this child enters eternal life. Instead of a rebellious judge who breaks the law, with the birth of this child, we're introduced to our Redeemer, the one who rescued us from the penalty of the law. Instead of doing what was right in his own eyes, with the birth of this child, we're introduced to a son who at great cost to himself laid his life down for us. He obeyed his father. He said, not my will, not my will, he said. Not what I want, but what you want, father, what you want and for these people. Instead of seeing the horrible mistreatment of a woman with the birth of this child, we see a woman who found favor with God. We see a woman who happened upon grace, right? And with the birth of this child, we are given our true king, one without fault, one who will care for us, one who will protect us, one who will lead us and guide us and unite us. That is our king. And with the birth of this child, we are given the promise that nothing, not even death, can separate us from his love. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, what a story you have to tell us. And so as we close, I hope that you guys can take just this little tidbit of a thought that you can picture that snowman on the beach or Ariel on the snowy mountains and you can think about Jesus being born in Bethlehem and it can make you think, ah, Something's happening here. God wants me to pay attention to something. And what he wants you to pay attention to is how much he loves you. He came here on purpose, for a purpose. And that is to show you that no matter how big your mess is, no matter how awful things are, no matter how insignificant and lonely you might feel, He is right there with you. Lauren said it this morning, Emmanuel, God is with us. So with that, will you pray with me?
Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you that um, we can look at something like Bethlehem and we can, we can wonder why you do some of the things that you do or some of the things that happen in this world. We wonder why they happen. God, I just ask that you would be with us, that you would show us your bigger story, that you would show us where you're at, that you would show us that you are with us. God, you're an amazing God. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you're doing. Lord, I pray that you would bless these wonderful, dear people as they go today and as they they live out this holiday season. God, we just pray that in the midst of it all, that we would find more of you and more of your love. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.